You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org.
All right, let me read here in Colossians 2, verse 6. You can turn with me there if you have a Bible. Uh, at times we'll have some of the passages on the screen for you. Um, again, if you're new with us, just thank you for being here. Uh, just time to relax, try to remove the distractions of all the different things going on today and try to focus just for a short 30 minutes or so with us uh, on this scripture. Colossians chapter two, verse six says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So we're gonna look at those two verses uh, a great deal, but then let's look on here, keep reading. Uh, Verse eight, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. This passage is like a giant crescendo as it leads us to that final verses there and uh, it's beautiful. And so hopefully this passage will encourage you. If I may just set the stage as we begin in this passage, this is really where you could say the letter, the body of the letter begins. I know you're like, wow, we're in chapter two here and he's just beginning the letter. Uh, Paul is long-winded and uh, he has a long introduction. He's been introducing himself and the topic and the theological basis for what he's about to say. In chapter two, chapter three, in fact, the men's retreat, we're talking about Colossians. They're like, Jordan, I love the, love the series. You're just going way too slow. When do we get to chapter three? And I was like, well, I'm trying, okay? All right, I'm trying. So I know we're going a little slow, but we'll be into chapter three, which is like the famous passages of Colossians. Uh, but it leads us to this point, really, uh, verses six and seven is this key passage. It's the meat of the letter. Paul has been uh, praying for the people of Colossi. Colossi. He has been sharing his heart with them. He, he then elevates Christ as preeminent above all things. Like we gotta start there. Jesus is the center of all things. He is the image of the invisible God. All things were created in him, through him. Um, by him all things hold together. This is Jesus. He holds up Jesus Christ as supreme and central. Then he describes how personally Paul himself has invested himself and his life and his ministry to the care of the church. He is literally giving himself and suffering on their behalf. He is in chains for them. He hopes to to absorb some suffering for Christ so that they would be preserved. He is seeking to be and preach the gospel, to warn and to teach every man and to present everyone mature in Christ. This is why he toils, he says, struggling with all his energy Jesus' energy that he powerfully works within me, he says in verse 29 of chapter one. So, so he's doing all this, he's gaining rapport with them. 
And then he comes uh, to this passage where he comes to the meat of the letter. You could say, if you're um, way back in literature class or if you have to write papers for college or wherever you are, kids, um, you might have to come up with a thesis statement. Like, what is the major thesis statement for the whole book? It's in verse six and seven. So if you wanna really come up with a, the, the, a good summary statement for what Paul is trying to say, what the whole occasion, the whole purpose of him writing this uh, three, four chapter letter here uh, to the Colossians, what is he trying to say? If I, if, Jordan, just summarize it for me. Just, just put it in a little sentence for me. I just need it short and quick. You're like, all right, fine, easy, right there, verse six and seven, all right? All right, so verse six and seven give us a good summary statement. He says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, so continue to live in him, he says. Verse seven, rooted, built up in him, and established in the faith, as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This is his major statement. So over the course of this next chapter, he is going to be teaching them and what that means, and he's gonna be teasing it out and working it out. And yet also, as Paul's already reminded us, he is a preacher of God's word. He aims to preach the whole counsel of God or to make the word of God fully known, as he says in chapter one, and he does that not just by suggesting things, he does it uh, by warning you against the negative and encouraging you and teaching you to the positive, all right? So he will have a mixture in this passage of warning, warning, warning. May I have your attention, please? My, that's actually the fire alarm warning. Have you heard that? Uh, you remember that a couple of months? It, it's been ringing through my head and I wake up in the middle of the night with a fire alarm warning. May I have your attention, please? Please exit the building. And it's a warning. It's a little wing, 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 and we're praying it doesn't go off in the middle of the service anymore, right? Okay. Uh, for those of you who weren't here, this happened a few months ago. So that, that may I have your attention, please, this warning system. There are times when Paul will just come right up in front and, and boom, this is a warning, be careful. And then he never just warns you and leaves you alone. He warns you and says, hey, but this is what I want to aim for. This is what we're looking for. Here's the theological reason for what I said. So in chapter two, verse four, he says, um, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. We briefly mentioned this last week, but I say this all that he's saying, so that no one would delude you with things that sound really good. And then in verse, chapter two, verse nine, uh, sorry, verse eight, he's going to say, uh, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, human tradition, all these extras, 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 adds all these other things into your faith. He's like, don't be taken captive to things that aren't according to Christ, because why? Well, he's been spending all this time saying Jesus is the center of all things, so why are you trying to add extra stuff in? It's really the simple statement. You could say, Jesus plus Nothing equals everything. You heard that? This is really a major passage that teaches that. Uh, Christ plus. Well, just Christ alone is really our faith. In Christ alone, that hymn that we think of, right? The insufficiencies of Christ, there are none. But here, there were false teachers within the church kind of alluding that there were just little areas in Christ that need to be filled up and made up with other things. MacArthur says insufficiencies in Christ can be made up by these false teachers who said that they could be made up by philosophy, human wisdom, legalism, ceremony, externalism, mysticism, and asceticism, which is self-denial. In fact, some of that is mentioned in this passage and then some of it at the latter, the ending of chapter two. 
We won't get into them all today. Um, but uh, this, you could even help you explain this. One, I was thinking of it, is how do I describe what this Jesus plus nothing is? You know, I think that word plus is so popular today. Maybe some of your minds went right there. Um, uh, plus is everywhere, right? Okay, Disney plus, right? Uh, Apple TV plus or whatever, TV plus, Hulu plus. ESPN Plus, no, none of them are sponsors here. Uh, Paramount Plus, literally, it keeps going. Discovery Plus, AMC Plus, BET Plus, like literally any show, TV channel, whatever, you see, they have a plus now. Everybody's doing the plus thing, right? Everyone has a streaming service. Everyone has extras. You want this, here's your cable TV, but you want all the extras and the plus you go here and you sign up and you're like, oh, it's only five bucks, it's only 10 bucks, it's only five bucks, it's only 10 bucks, and by the before you know it, you're paying more than you did for cable, right? That's the way they get you, right? Okay, maybe I'm just speaking for myself. Okay, so this whole plus thing, right? This is not what we're supposed to be doing in the church, Jesus plus. And I get all the extras and the benefits we need to be adding in, all this other stuff, mix it in, you know, stir up the pot, and then there's our faith. Got Jesus who makes up, yeah, he makes up half of it, but the other stuff I need to add in. It's really, in a sense, addition by subtraction. You're either removing Christ's power, or you think God and Jesus are very powerful, but you need to add in or everything else. Subtraction, addition, whatever you want to call it. Our faith is built in Jesus Christ alone. And yes, James speaks of works, and without works, our faith is dead. These are the results, you could say, of our faith, and religion, and all these things we'll talk about even next week with some of the passage that is in chapter two, and and that is not what we aim to build ourselves to heaven. It is not the, the, the aim and the way and the means, but rather the result of what a Christian life looks like. So, verses six and seven give us a little insight. The first point is really this, what is the foundation of the Christian life? This book is very practical. Yes, it talks big theology, Jesus Christ alone. He is big, he is supreme. But it really gets to the core of what your entire life is about, what your everyday waking up life should be about. Maybe you feel that sometimes you come to church and the pastor is a little too up in the clouds, right? You know, it's like, it's like too much up there. Can you get a little more practical for me? Well, I think really this, this passage and so much other of what Paul's gonna be sharing with us in chapter three, I mean, it starts getting really practical. What is this all about? Can you ask that question to yourself? What is this all about anyways? What do we get out of Christianity? What are the benefits and the abundance of that we receive? What is the point of doing church and coming? And maybe you're new to church. Maybe this is like one of your first times ever in the doors of a church and you're kind of like, what is it that everyone does here and why? You know what I mean? And, and what is it that how we do it and all of this? And so we think through this and I think of the song, in the morning when I rise. Can you hear that? I won't sing it for you. Give me Jesus, he says, right? Give me Jesus. You may have all the world, but give me Jesus. There's a certain simplicity to our faith that I may offer you all of these things and attractions to draw you to church and draw you to faith, but ultimately, at the end of the day, those are empty and just the pluses that we try to add. What I offer you today is Christ. I can't offer you anything else. There's nothing else worth offering. We give you Jesus Christ, we preach Christ. We have nothing else if we try to add anything else in. First John 5, 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's very simple. 
First Corinthians 1, 27, 28 talks about how the mystery of the gospel, which is Christ in you, sorry, not First Corinthians, Colossians, says Christ in you, the hope of glory, chapter one, verse 28, it is him we proclaim, he says. Him we proclaim, it's simple, Christ is Lord. And so in chapter two, verse six, the verse we just read, therefore as you have received Christ Jesus the what? The Lord. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. This is a statement of acceptance, a, almost a confirmation and a proclamation of your faith. And we literally, I kid you not, ninth graders, actually seventh, eighth and ninth graders who were in my class earlier, we were all together, and we talked about this very idea, did we not? That you can call Jesus, in fact, at the men's retreat, we talked about this in our small group. Jesus Christ can be a lot of things to a lot of people. C.S. Lewis says, is he liar, or is he a lunatic? He's a liar, or he's Lord. Have you made him your Lord? Is he king of your life? You know, back in the day, maybe they do it in schools today, maybe they don't, I don't know, but in, in the school I grew up into, you said the Pledge of Allegiance. Right? I pledge allegiance to the flag. In a similar manner, in a similar way, when we encounter and we walk through the waters of baptism, as we go through those waters, there is a certain pledge of allegiance to Jesus Christ where we identify ourselves with Christ. We are, we are placing ourselves under his authority, under his lordship, under his power. We are pledging allegiance to Christ. In fact, that is what this statement in Colossians uh, 2, verse six, several commentators I read said the statement here, that is, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, that is almost a statement that they believe was said by many of the early church in baptisms. In fact, today, when we do adult baptisms here, and even uh, infant baptisms, when those occur, there's often a, a requirement from the family, from the parents, from the people present, and from the person being baptized. Uh, a statement of the Apostles' Creed, that I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And then within the waters, if the person is an adult, they, they give this proclamation or I say to them, as we just did, I think, it was, was it last week or two weeks ago? My head's running through. We did some baptisms here, it was awesome. And I often ask them as they get into the water, do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And you're like, well duh, obviously they're gonna answer. But that statement, that's a big statement where you align your life with Jesus Christ and they say, I do. I do a lot of weddings where you say, for better or for worse, for and you, do you commit to loving your spouse according to all these things? I do. Publicly proclaiming your faith in Jesus is a beautiful thing. And so they're saying here in chapter two, verse six, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, right? So walk in him. This statement of I'm receiving Christ Jesus, I believe in him, I commit to him, I'm proclaiming to the world, that he is my Lord. How awesome is that? And then he says, don't just stop there. I've got my little card, right? As we made a joke about last week, oh, you got my card and I'm good, I'm set, right? Put it in my pocket and I go do whatever I want. No, no, this is a real actionable faith that evidences itself in works. Not that works allows our, it is the opposite way, right? That faith comes and then works. Right? James talks about this idea, but here we see that this is what a walking lifestyle looks like. So he says in verse six, live in him, walk in him, however your translation might have it. 
to live in Christ. This is the word of walking. We've mentioned this in the past. This, this idea of walking, it is a journey. It means lifestyle. So you're like, well, Jesus never tells me how to live my life. Well, you know, in so many ways, there is certain application per culture. Cultural things are different. But Jesus allows us and, and empowers us to submit our lives to him that then has a reflection on our lifestyle. And that does, yes, looks different in every culture and every time period of life in every country. It might look a little different, but the aim is the same as we seek to walk in him. We're following Christ. Our lifestyle must be filled with Christ and in Christ and through Christ. He is the center of our lives and our lifestyles to reflect that central truth and reality. And Paul gets very practical here. And I really like that. I hope you guys will start, you, you will start to enjoy the sermons. I'm hoping you've enjoyed it. But please, I hope you will start to enjoy them better. Okay. Um, but over the next couple of weeks, we're gonna get to the, some passages that are like, they, they don't get more practical because Paul's telling you, here's what you need to do. And, and I don't always preach like that. I don't always preach like, do this, you know? I don't know, it's maybe not my style, but Paul gives you these imperative commands. So let me just read them for you very quick, all right? As you know, I can speak very fast, so don't, don't try to keep up here. But these are some of the imperative commands that Paul gives for your lifestyle that he is telling you, do, do, now walk, walk, go, go, right? Here's what he says. In some of these chapters here, he says, see to it. He'll say, do not let anyone judge you. Do not let anyone disqualify you. Set your hearts on things above. Set your minds on things above. Put to death, rid yourself. Do not lie to each other. Clothe yourselves, bear with each other. Forgive one another, put on love. Let the peace of Christ dwell in your hearts. Be thankful, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, do not embitter your children. Slave bond servants, obey your masters. Work with it in all your heart. Masters, provide with your servants what is right and fair. Devote yourselves to prayer. Pray for us, be wise. Let your conversation be full of grace. So, so he, gets, he just goes after you in the next like literally two chapters. He is just going to be like, this is your response to your faith. And you say, you call yourself a Christian, here is what w- this looks like. It is putting off of the old and putting on the new. Now walk in that. Right, that this is what he's calling us to do. It's just loaded with application. I don't even have to really try hard to like, well, I gotta come up with application. No, he just, he gives it to you. And then Paul, in this passage in verse six, if uh, the booth could bring up a Colossians two, verse seven, six and seven, it, this is the idea of walking in him, and then the next verse is seven, where he gives us some illustrations that help apply what he's saying. Where he, he then says, and Paul loves to do this, as he can be confusing, but it was also the way uh, that writing happened back then. Uh, he loves to mix metaphors. Again, so if you're an English teacher, you would have like, like failed Paul out of your English class because he mixes metaphor after metaphor and it becomes confusing, but then it's actually helpful, right? So he does this. He, he says, rooted and built up. He gives two different pictures for what your faith is ought to be looking like and what it's supposed to be based on. And so he says the foundation of the Christian life is ultimately that we're walking in him, we've received Jesus Christ, and it goes on from there that we are rooted and built up. It's almost like he starts turning this diamond and he allows you to see different facets of the diamond as he looks at him. One is rooted and turns it, one's built up, and then he'll go on, and the next one's established. 
And he keeps going on throughout the chapter, giving you different sides of it. But the idea of rooted is not difficult to understand. It's the idea of horticulture here, a, a tree and, and the roots that goes deep into the ground. And it doesn't make hard, it's not hard for us to think through that if I, in fact, literally last night I was coming home from the men's retreat. And we live on a dirt uh, road uh, through the woods because this is New Hampshire, right? And so we live through this scary long dirt road and uh, there's a tree just like right in the middle of the road as I come. And then of course I, I watch way too many streaming shows so I immediately think ambush, someone's trying to get me. <laughs> you know, they're like, wait, wait, I'm not in some like crazy like apocalypse movie here. No, so, okay, it's not an ambush. So, and the bears are, you gotta get, you clap your hands, the bears will run away, right? I'm very brave by myself in the middle of the night. And so uh, I get out of the car and I pick up the tree because I'm a man and I pick up the tree and I move it to the side of the road, right? But it was heavy because the thing was waterlogged and it was rotten and the roots were almost non-existent. The thing was just thick, solid, wet, soaking, dead tree, boom, right across the road. Had no roots, had nothing to keep it rooted and standing strong, like those mighty oak trees that you'll see, or these beautiful maple trees that are losing their, their leaves these days, right? The beauty of these trees that stand firm, it's because the leaves and the branches you see above also are mimicked in the roots below that are deep. And then he gives a story, or not a story, sorry, he gives a, uh, a metaphor of construction, all right? And I always tread lightly here too because I'll just let you guys fill in the blanks, right? The construction he built upon, and this is the concrete foundation. I try to use that word as often as I can, amen, I heard that. So use a concrete foundation. This, this stage has concrete on it. We're standing, we're right here. There's concrete on the ground. There's a foundation that holds the building up that is that source, that foundation, he tells sales is the cornerstone of Jesus Christ upon which the entire foundation is built upon. All that you see above is built upon the foundation of Jesus. It is a building up. It is a construction. It is a rooted. It is established like concrete. It is not the waiting for it to set up. It's the rebar that's placed in that wet concrete and then it is set. And you cannot remove that rebar from it for it is hardened, it is, it is established, it's solid, it can't be pulled out. This gives us confidence and this gives us a sense of what our life is to be about. It is not something that is tossed to and fro. It is not something that needs to be added to or improved. It is solid, it is rooted, it is built upon Jesus Christ for we have received him, so now walk in him. Walk in him and rejoice, he says, and be thankful is what he says in the last page, as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So that's his point there to that is the foundation. It is in Jesus and he's already gone on at length in chapter one to talk about Jesus and then he'll go on later on but then he goes into the warning. He gives a brief warning. He'll elaborate it on it next week even more but he gives you a warning and he says warning, warning. Verse eight, see to it. Okay, so there's an imperative command. See to it. Don't miss this, he says. Don't let anybody take you captive. Don't let anybody take you captive. Douglas Moo says this word taking captive vividly expresses the danger that readers may be, and I love this, carried off as plunder by an alien or fundamentally anti-Christian form of teaching, this idea that you could be taken and carried off as plunder. That's the picture of taking you captive. It's actually a very unique word. In fact, where uh, some may think in the Greek, this word take you captive is one word there. It, it sounds like a pun. Do you know a pun? It sounds like a, this word, uh, take you captive, actually sounds like the word synagogue. 
synagogue, which is a, a place of teaching of Jewish law in that time. And so no doubt the teachers during that time, the false teachers, were, were trying to teach some form of Judaism and Judaizing message that Christ is uh, mostly enough, but you need to add dietary restrictions and the celebration of these festivals and this kind of legalistic thing added into your faith and then you'll be complete and fully alive in Christ. So just add in all these things. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. Be careful no one takes you captive. And he uses one somewhat of a pun because it does sound like synagogue and this word are the same thing. Puns are, you could say, like a dad joke, all right? Um, Mark Twain said, denial ain't just a river in Egypt, okay? Or, or that whiteboard is remarkable. Or I meant to look for my missing watch, but I could never find the time. Right? Writing it with a dull pencil is pointless. And do you know why Peter Pan flies all the time? because he never lands, right? Okay, all right, some of you aren't laughing. These are really good jokes, okay? Thank you. Make me feel better about myself. I didn't actually write them, I just stole them from the internet. But these are word puns. The word sounds like something else. It's a play on words. And it sounds like Paul's also doing that here. It takes you captive, a word that sounds like synagogue, or they would almost mistake it for the same thing. So he says, don't let people, even within these groups, take you captive with plausible arguments. They will sound good, but they're actually dangerous, he says, okay? So especially this plus theology, adding in all these things. And then he goes on to list a few of the things, like, hey, don't let the things of philosophy, worldly wisdom, and empty deceit, things that are hollow, that aren't actually the real thing. They look like it because they're deceiving. It's a lure, right? It looks like the same thing. If you're a fly fisherman, you fish, and that lure, the better you can make that fly, the better chance you're gonna have to catch the fish because that fly is so accurate. You, some people will actually call it like an art of making that lure look so realistic that they can use it to fly fish, and it's, it takes a certain amount of skill one commentary says the more convincing the fly, the better it'll work, right? It's almost as if the false teaching is fake news, right? A term we're very familiar with these days. A, a fake news kind of way of doing it. Sounds like news, it sounds real, it sounds true, but it's not. And so these false teaching, as he says, are empty and deceptive. They, they ultimately will leave you wanting, but they do sound really good. And then there's things of like human tradition things that human philosophies and um, other things, I actually love that way the NLT puts this. Uh, the, the NLT says, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense, I love that, that comes from human thinking alone and from the spiritual powers of the world rather than from Christ. So don't let all these other things that sound really good, or they're ultimately high-sounding nonsense, or human thinking, like this is really built in from the world's wisdom and not starting originally with Christ. Okay, so don't let those things tie you up. Reliance upon the human tradition and religion as a means to salvation is not okay, rather than those things as a result of salvation, which can be an expression of our faith from out of that. That's a, you gotta get that right. And then he gets in to the elemental spirits of the world in this passage, which again, he'll go on next week. It, it, this elemental spirits of the world is a very challenging kind of phrase, but it's like mysticism or the spirituality that is void of Christ. 
It's actually really popular today. You'll hear this all the time. In fact, many people say religion is downgrading, religion is going down, but in fact, certain religions are doing that. But what we have today is that spiritualism and spirituality is actually on the rise. People are recognizing that the postmodern lack of absolute truth is really not the way to go and is really kind of an empty, fruitless lifestyle. And so they're searching for something that gives them meaning beyond their everyday existence. And there are so many different ways where the elemental spirituality here in the world will often fill a certain void for a certain time but then leave you hollow and empty and wanting. This mysticism or spirituality without Christ as Lord, not Jesus as our King, no submission to Him, no truth of God's word but just a a spiritual charm, you could say even a superstition kind of lifestyle, just very superstitious things and all that. That's what Paul's saying, be careful of those things for these things are not according to Christ not according to Christ, so be, be, beware that we, and then he goes into this very strong, powerful section where he then lays out the gospel, he hammers home what it means to be in Christ. The Jesus plus nothing equals everything. He teaches us the sufficiency of Christ. So Paul reminds us our life is in Christ, not these other things, Christ alone. He even gives one illustration, uh, sorry, a commentator gives an illustration that I felt was helpful for me when speaking about these kinds of things that, that our, uh, we are to be sufficient, we are supposed to, that his grace is sufficient. He gives the illustration that you know, advertising really at its heart, or a lot of the marketing that we'll see in today's world, and you guys are bombarded with it all the time. Watch any football game and you will be bombarded with advertising. And what is the aim, the core aim of advertising? It really preys on your insecurities. It is preying on the fact that there is something missing in your life, is it not? If you would only wear our money, if you only drove this car, if you only drank this beverage, you could have this girl. If only you looked like her, you would have friends like her, right? If only, and there's so many different ways to advertise this subtly today, that ultimately you are insecure about who you are as a person and your identity, and therefore these things will fill that thing that you're missing. And then you'll find out as soon as you get that thing, there's always something else that will fill that, right? And this is exactly what's happening here. There are people saying that there's something missing. You need circumcision. You need baptism. You need visions. You need spirituality, feelings. You need experiences. You need to wear a suit to church on Sunday. You need to uh, look this way and dress this way. You need to read a certain Bible translation. And, And some of those things are completely fine and normal one way or another, but it is not central to our faith. Paul is saying, no, you need Christ first. That must be the foundational element upon which anything else stands, right? You are secure in him. We find our sufficiency in him. Don't let us add to Christ. So he then goes on to describe what does it look like when we don't add in Christ? And why is it that we can build our foundation on Jesus Christ? Why is it that this stage stands upon him? Why is it that, boom, this is solid, the solid rock I stand? How is it? What does he do for me? What is Jesus all about? Well, he gives us in verses 9 through 14 many different phrases where he says, walk in him, rooted and built up in him. Fullness of God is in him. You are filled in him. You getting annoyed yet? Spiritual circumcised in him. Buried with him. Raised with him. Made alive together with him. All right, so you get the idea. The fullness and filled is this first point. Look at verses nine through 10. 
He, he, it says the fullness of God dwells in him. Unless you thought Jesus was not all powerful God and he was just a man, no, 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 let's think about this. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. This is a key point that is so vital for our faith. It says, for in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily and dwells with him. It, it, he is God, monotheism if you would, right? But in a way in which is expressed through the Trinity throughout the scripture, the fullness of God is with him. And then what's so cool is that the powerful fullness of God is not so far off, but rather that power is the energy within us. It says in verse 10, you have been filled in him. Verse 10, filled in him. Wow. Paul's emphasizing being filled with the spirit, as he says in other ways. Here he does focus on Christ, but I think some of the emphasis is the same. Being filled with the spirit. Walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. This is the, the picture he goes into. It is God's fullness that is present in and through Jesus. It is God's fullness that dwells with us and fills us so we also don't have to go somewhere or go through someone, someone else in order to access God. No, he is here with us and in us. He is with us in this church and we are also then bound to him. In the early church and even today, there were several ways and in the Old Testament in which you found your identity. How is it that you identified with a faith or a people group? Well, in the Jewish religion, in the Jewish Old Testament, you found that identity with your faith through circumcision and through a sort of ritual baptism. And so these two things Paul goes right into. He'll mention it in verse 11. He'll mention it in baptism in verse 12. And he goes into really, I guess you could say, a really curious um, metaphor where he talks about circumcision, but he makes sure to remember this is not a physical, made with your hands circumcision, this is a spiritual one, which is really the original intent of it all along. But they lost their, their understanding here, and so he reminds them, Jesus is telling you to put it off. It does seem like a strange thing for us today in our modern mentality to think this through, but what was clearly happening is people were saying, add, add, plus, 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 and he's saying, no, 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 you are to put off the old and to put on the new, which is Christ in you. This is the outward and inward reality. We walk in that. Even in fact, in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 10, you stiff-necked people, he says, circumcise your hearts. Like, get this inward circumcision of the removal of the stone heart of flesh and the replacement of the living one from God. It's a matter of the heart. And so like the removal of the old body of flesh here it says, it is now the replacement of the new for we have been circumcised with Christ. This is that picture. Okay, he'll, he'll elaborate on this later. So if you're not fully grasping and understand that, read chapter three. For he says, put to death, therefore what is earthly in you. Put off the old self with its practices and put on the new, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Put on then as God's chosen ones put on love. So this is chapter three, right? Romans 6 says we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for it that has been put off but rather we could put on and be set free from sin. There's a, there's a whole like freedom. You are now free to move about the cabin, right? I'm, I'm in all these statements, right? Well, why? Well, you, you are buckled into your seat in the Southwest flight and you can't get out. You cannot escape. And all of a sudden it is freed. Your seat buckle is out, off. You are now free to move. You are now free to live. You are now free to be a slave to righteousness, he says. You are set free from sin, put off, put on. This is the picture, the spiritual circumcision. 
Then he goes in and he describes, not only is that so powerful that your chains are broken and you are free to live in Christ and walk in Christ, you are also baptized with Christ. And the picture he gives here in verse 12, having been buried, you're dead, okay? (laughs) And we'll joke around often in the baptism that if I hold you under the water long enough, You're gonna die, right? You will be dead there. But the water is the picture of we have been buried with him in Christ. But we, as the passage says, verse 12, we are raised with him. And in Romans 6, says we are raised with Christ and it says we now may walk in newness of life. Romans 6 and Colossians 2, they're very similar. Die with Christ, rise with Christ. We buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. This is the picture. It's beautiful. We find ourselves in Christ, therefore it should not be surprising that we find ourselves being crucified with Christ and that we also find ourselves rising with Christ. Isn't that so interesting? That this is actually the effects of being and living in Christ. That we align with him in his sufferings and the crucifixion, but we also align with him in his resurrection. This is the hope of glory, Christ in you, okay? And then we get to this final passage in closing. This amazing, beautiful passage, and and I'm sure I'll even look through it next week as well because there's so much here. Jesus, as you could, he has told you already to put it off. Jesus killed it, buried it, and raised it, and then Jesus nailed it, okay? He canceled it, you could say. He, He just, look at it, in the passage, I'm literally using the exact phrasing he says. And you who are dead in your trespasses and sins, verse 13, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, and by canceling or wiping clean the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Wow, what a cool phrase. What a cool passage. The pictures here. We were strangers. Ephesians 2 talks about this. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but now God has made you alive. By grace you are saved through faith. This is Ephesians 2. And Colossians 2, so similar. Now you are alive, this picture of this debt, this weight, this record of our transgressions and our trespasses that were hanging over us, just like the the titleist, the statement of who Jesus Christ was hung over his head on the cross. That that paper that was nailed to the cross, the image brings us back to that in Matthew 27. It says that over his head they put the charge against him which read, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. John 19, Pilate wrote an inscription and put it on the cross and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This king, ha, 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 is dead on a cross. He he can't save you. Jesus, if you can save us, come down. Come down, they say. Save yourself. He can't save himself. How could he save you? That's what the statement is saying. Our sins there, and pictured here in Colossians 2, it is as if Jesus in his statement of who he is also nails our sins to that very cross and he takes it upon a tree, a, a picture of Roman persecution, a symbol of death, of crucifixion and capital punishment made now into a symbol of salvation and redemption all through Jesus Christ and his blood Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He took that curse on himself by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. 
Horatio Spafford's hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. N.T. Wright says the cross was not the defeat of Christ at the hands of the powers. It was the defeat of the powers at the hands, yes, the bleeding hands of Christ, which is exactly what Paul says, that he has taken our debt and our transgressions and our sin. He has taken it with him on the cross. He has nailed it there so it can be crucified in the grave so that we could rise to live in him and walk in him and walk in newness of life. And then in a public display of his power and authority, look at verse 15, for he says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He disarmed them. He stripped them of their powers and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Okay, just right at the end, in case you forgot, this in him, with him passage is a big deal. God, Jesus Christ, disarms them. He brings them to shame. He exposes their emptiness and lack of power, and he triumphs over them in victory. For Jesus is the center of all things. Jesus is the center of creation and new creation. He is the center of the fullness of life. He is the center of our redemption. He is the center of our burial and our resurrection, the center of our baptism, the center of our forgiveness and our propitiation. And he is the center of our triumph and our victory. There is nothing else to add. He is sufficient. There is nothing more to add to Jesus. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus is enough. This is what this passage is screaming at us. Jesus has won. He is victorious, and we find ourselves today complete and whole in Christ, and we walk in him, and we rely on him, and we walk in him rooted and built up in him, filled with Christ, replaced with Christ, washed with Christ, buried with Christ, raised with Christ, alive, forgiven, and victorious in Christ. For we find ourselves today, dear people, in Christ alone in Christ alone. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for you are enough. God, forgive me when I try to take away or add to you. Forgive me, Lord, when I don't trust in you. I place power in myself. God, may you be elevated above all. May you be the energy in which we powerfully work today the work that you work within us. You do it, God. You will complete the good work that you have begun. Continue to mature us and grow us in you. Teach us what it means to walk in you. God, give me understanding. Lord, help me to trust in your rootedness, your your foundation, and walk today confidently knowing that you love us, you care for us, and your kindness overwhelms us today. God, give us truth. Help encourage these souls and these people here today. Thank you, God, for you are good. In Jesus' name, amen.